some of these kids that were singing up here schooled you in how to sing this morning. It was beautiful. Good morning, I'm Dave Reimer. I'm another one of the stagehands on duty this morning. I feel um, especially privileged to be asked to share today on this uh, uniquely special Sunday that we call Compassion Sunday. I mean, in the broad category of outreach and reaching kids especially, our Amiga team is part of that, that uh, goes down to the Children's Haven International every year, and, and then Compassion certainly is a part of that. 300 years ago, Isaac Watts wrote a wonderful hymn. It became one of the ancient and much-loved hymns of the Christian faith, O God, Our Help in Ages Past. If you grew up in church, you, I'm sure, are basically familiar with it, but deep down in the stanzas, in stanza five, the fifth verse, he writes this line, Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away. Old man river, time just keeps rolling, carrying us further downstream every, every day. It never stops. In just a few weeks, that ever-rolling stream will, in my case, have rolled along for 78 years. I know you're shocked. I don't look it. I look older. <laughs> in writing that hymn, Isaac Watts did not think to say that life is also like a roll of toilet paper. The nearer you get to the end, the faster it goes. Well, the only reason he didn't say that is because I don't think they had toilet paper 300 years ago. So yeah, I'm, I'm just admitting where I am in life. I'm aging like a fine banana on your counter. And I'm at that stage where now I have a lot more to look back on than I do to look forward to, in this life anyway. Decades in the rearview mirror. Years at best, by God's grace, through the windshield ahead. But in looking back, one of the questions that increasingly gives me pause is this question. What are those things that I have put time and energy into that were worth it? And what things will prove to be of no consequence in the big picture of God's plan for my life and the world and my part in it? This is the kind of question that no matter where we are in life, it's good to ask ourselves from time to time. The Apostle Paul had the same questions about his own life. And the Holy Spirit has preserved his reflections for us, some of them. And I'm choosing this morning to focus on a part of Paul's reflection this morning. And it's from a small New Testament book called 2 Timothy. There were two letters written to Timothy, his friend. This is the second of those. And 2 Timothy contains the Apostle Paul's last recorded words. And in this letter, he's doing the same kind of examination of his life and his priorities that we're talking about today. Now, let me give you a little bit of the historical setting of 2 Timothy. I hope if you have a Bible or a device along, you'll open it to that and follow along. If you don't have a Bible today, there should be one near you under a chair in front of you. Find 2 Timothy. It's nearer the end of the New Testament. The historical setting to the time of the writing was that Paul, the apostle, was in prison in Rome. And there are some Bible scholars that believe he was actually 
executed within weeks of having written 2 Timothy, which could mean that he maybe was already dead when Timothy first received and read this letter to him. And as you read 2 Timothy, it's clear that Paul knew that the end was near. In chapter 4, he says, The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. The urgency of his words is pretty clear. You know, when you know that life is short, the less substantial things just fade into the background and you begin to focus on the more important things. Staring death in the face has a powerfully clarifying effect on the mind. So in giving us these last words of the Apostle, the Holy Spirit is challenging us to discover and give ourselves to the things that matter most. If you knew your life would end next week, what would you discover as you think back to the life you've lived? What would you wish you'd done more? What would you wish you'd done less? I came across some writings of an Australian nurse named Bonnie Ware who spent years caring for hundreds of patients in the last 12 weeks of their lives. And as she walked them through their final days, she noticed how so many of them gained, in her words, a phenomenal clarity of vision as they approached death. Ms. Ware says, when questioned about any regrets they had or anything they would do differently, common themes came to the surface time and time again, and she cataloged them. I'm going to list the top five for you. See where they might fit in your own thinking. Here are the top five regrets of the dying, according to her experience. Number one, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. Number two, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. She said this came from every male patient she nursed. Three, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. She said many patients <clears throat> developed illnesses re <clears throat> related to the bitterness and resentment that they carried as a result. They said, I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. I find that as I get older, the old friendships and relationships matter more than they used to. And then the final one that she shared was this. They said, I wish I had let myself be happier. Many had not realized until the end that happiness is a choice. And they had stayed stuck in their old patterns and habits. So what rises to the surface of Paul's heart as he recognizes his days are numbered? What counsel does he give Timothy, his trusted young friend? And probably not surprising, it had to do with the gospel. And about guarding the gospel for some really important reasons. The gospel was the central theme of Paul's life. It was the central theme of the book of Romans, and he puts it right out front in, in the book of Romans in the first chapter in this incredibly uh, important part of the New Testament. And he says in chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And, and he expresses that theme, his theme, in a summary statement that's right here in the first chapter of 2 Timothy. I'll show you what that is in just a moment, but I want to give you several characteristics of the letter that will help you understand it better. This is basically what we're going to do is just a Bible study this morning, uh, trying to see what God is speaking to us 
in uh, the first chapter of 2 Timothy. But the first characteristic I want to point out is that this really is for all Christians. 2 Timothy is one of what we call the pastoral epistles, letters written to pastors about how to conduct ministry in the local church. The others are 1 Timothy and Titus. And these are not letters written to churches, as many of the New Testament letters were, but to people. But most of the things that Timothy is urged to do, all Christians are urged to do, like not be ashamed of the gospel. It's not so much a book from one pastor to another pastor about how to pastor a church as it is one Christian writing to another Christian about how to live the Christian life. Here's another characteristic. His letter really is full of bad news. The apostle drops two bombshells on Timothy. One, uh, who apparently is still in Ephesus while Paul is in prison in Rome. Number one, it's his own imminent death. And then secondly, his despair over how many Christian leaders have given up on the gospel. And it almost sounds like he fears that Timothy is in danger of losing his edge. This bad news kind of creates uh, in the letter an air of crisis from start to finish. There, there's an air of loneliness and emotion as Paul faces death. In light of Paul's own imminent death and in light of so many giving up on the gospel he realizes how much rests on this young man's shoulders and as a result the letter reveals Paul's desperate situation he is uh, suffering in chains he's cold he's all alone except for Luke in fact the authorities have apparently made it so hard to find him in Rome that others deserted him you see that in verse 15 and only one person a man named Onesiphorus, we learn in verses 16 through 18, stubbornly searched for him until he discovered where he was being held. So here's the theme of the letter. Basically, it's the gospel and our stewardship of it. What are we doing with it? How, how well are we holding it? An author and theologian named John Stott wrote a commentary on 2 Timothy called Guarding or guard the gospel, and he writes this, For all around us, we see Christians and churches relaxing their grasp of the gospel, fumbling it, in danger of letting it drop from their hands altogether. A new generation of young Timothys is needed who will guard the sacred deposit of the gospel, who are determined to proclaim it and are prepared to suffer for it, and who will pass it on pure and uncorrupted to the generation which in due course will rise up to follow them. God gives this church and his other churches, the entire congregation of Grace Community Church, that and the elders and leaders especially, that mission, that burden of protecting and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in a culture that is determined to ignore it at best and to destroy it and its champions at worst. So if I could summarize the message of this letter in a sentence or two, I'd put it somewhat like this. Timothy, guard the gospel message. This means you're going to have to feed the flame, to keep feeding the flame of the life and gift of God in you so that you can have unashamed courage to speak openly of Christ and to suffer for the gospel. So Paul lays this out right here in the first chapter as soon as he finishes his introductory remarks. And it's introduced there in verse 6. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame 
the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. We must feed that flame or it'll go out. What's the gift of God? Well, there were unique spiritual gifts that, uh, <clears throat> that was identified in Timothy, but the greater gift is this stewardship of the gospel. He's given us as a gift the gospel and the gifts and abilities then to proclaim it, to share it with others. Fan it until it's white hot. I think Paul felt compelled to say this, partly because the flame was in danger of going out. He reminds Timothy in verse 7 that being timid does not reflect the presence of God's Spirit in us. Don't be ashamed of the gospel and of me as a prisoner for the Lord. Suffer with me, Timothy. God's power will help you. And, and again, it sounds like Paul's afraid that Timothy's getting cold. You know, fire just isn't going to continue to burn unless it is fed. And when Paul writes this phrase in the Greek language of the New Testament, fan into flame the gift of God, he uses the present tense, which was an important thing in, in that language, uh, and it simply means to keep fanning. This is a continuous action. You know, one fix, one retreat, one mountaintop spiritual experience, one good book, one good worship service, important as those things are, that's not going to do it. It's a continuous guarding, a continuous feeding of the flame, a continuous fanning it into life, a continuous using the gifts God has given us to communicate the gift of the gospel. And so guarding the gospel doesn't mean just holding on to what we believe about it. This is not a, a doctrinal or a theological exercise or a command entirely. It means to live a life of commitment to it, to do whatever it takes to get the gospel to other people in our community, in other communities, and to other places in the world, to not be concerned about the cost, not be concerned about what people think of us as we do, but to single-mindedly obey Jesus and make him known to others. And the rest of the letter basically spells out how, the how of guarding the gospel by fanning the flame of the gift God gives us. But the first chapter establishes the truth about what's so important uh, about the gospel and how it's worth living for and dying for. So I want to lay out for you how this text makes that challenge. And I think there's something even in the somewhat formal introduction that's worth noting. And, and it's how the gospel actually starts with grace. Look at verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. We read the New Testament enough, it almost sounds kind of like boilerplate language. That's just what Paul said to everybody. But I'm going to make a point, and, and Paul does follow a, a theme or a pattern, but there's a relevant thing here that I want to point out to you. Paul's letters often start out with some form of grace to you, to you. And here it's to Timothy, grace. But it ends differently, grace be with you. And it's the same in many of his letters. In fact, I think probably all of his New Testament letters have that pattern. Grace to you, grace with you. Here's the point. The Christian life begins with God's grace to us. But it continues 
as God's grace is with us. Edgar's testimony is, is just a wonderfully encouraging story of this very thing, isn't it? How God's grace came to him in that compassion ministry in, in that church in Santa Domingo. And how his grace has continued to be with him, bringing him to the place where he is now. God's grace saves us as it comes to us. Then it gives our life meaning and fruitfulness because it is with us in every effort we make for him. We never start the Christian life without God's grace, and we never live it without his grace. This is a subtle but very real reminder that uh, we're not going to be able to guard the gospel and see it work in someone else's life without God's grace, his free gift giving us strength and direction. You get God's grace not because you deserve it, but because he wants to use you and work through you. He wants to give you his gift of salvation and then make your life count for something for eternity, wherever you are. These next few verses say something important about Timothy that that's one of the reasons this is an important message for us this morning and it describes how the gospel produces true faith verses 3 through 5 I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers he's praying for Timothy recalling your tears I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy I'm reminded of your sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. What's a sincere faith? It's an authentic faith. It's unhypocritical. It's real. And you can only fan into flame the gift of God if there is that kind of real faith to start with. And in Timothy's case, his faith was born in him because it first existed in his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois. And that's how God designed it, that families and parents especially would establish an environment of faith for their children in the home that makes it natural for that child at some point to have a personal faith that is born in them. And in Timothy's case, his father was apparently not a believer, but his mother and his grandmother were. And I hope this is an encouragement to those of you who are either single parents or a parent whose spouse does not share your faith. And to encourage you to keep on communicating that faith. It, it's better if both parents can. And it makes it harder if, they are, if you are alone. But it does not make it impossible. There is an incredible power in the life of a Christian father or a Christian mother, even if they're by themselves. Don't give up. And because of that living faith in Timothy, Paul can summarize the charge, the challenge that's at the foundation of this entire letter. Guarding the gospel by guarding your own heart and feeding the flame in your heart for the Lord Jesus and his work. And Timothy can feed the flame because his faith was real. It was authentic. Paul describes the gospel's challenge in verses 6 through 8. For this reason... I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit of God, for the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. 
We talked a little bit about this challenge already, but how do you feed the flame? You want to do this? You want to respond to Paul? Yeah, I want to feed the flame in my life. Well, first understand that it's by the power of God. This isn't something you can drum up in your life, some sort of enthusiasm. This is by the power of God. And, and this power is what keeps us from hiding in timidity and enables us to maintain love in our relationships with those we want to reach with the gospel. And His power helps us maintain the self-discipline we need, need to stay true to the gospel. In verse 7, we see that God's power is given to us in the Holy Spirit, who indwells every believer. God the Holy Spirit lives in every one of you who is a true child of God by faith in Jesus. And secondly, we see in the next verses that we rise to the challenge by God's grace. God's power first, God's grace. Verse 9, it's a grace that was established before the beginning of time. Verse 11, which means it's timeless. It will remain with you. And then how does that grace come to you and work in your life on a daily basis? How do you... How do you access God's living grace? Well, it's through God's Word. I want to take you back to Acts chapter 20. There was an event there that the author Luke describes in which the Apostle Paul calls for the elders, the leaders, all the pastoral leaders and elders of, of the church in Ephesus, where Timothy is at the time of this writing. And he describes this meeting between Paul and the elders, and Paul basically wants to say goodbye, and he says, you'll never see me again, they all cry. And, and he tells them a lot of things as he says his goodbyes. But after saying, be on your guard, he says in verse 32, Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace. And I, I'm positive part of what Paul is talking about there is what he knew would be, has, was for them in the Old Testament and would be in the New Testament, the word of God. We come to understand God better through His Word. We are challenged by the principles of life. This is one of the very important ways God mediates His grace to you, is through His Word. He says, I commit you to God and to the Word of His grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. It's one of the very important ways God mediates His grace to you. It's one of the ways God's grace is with you, as Paul says. And it's one of the important ways to feed the flame. I don't think you can feed the flame without being in God's Word on some kind of a fairly regular basis. You receive grace as you internalize God's Word and it builds you up. And then we, we also feed the flame by following the example of those who boldly do gospel work and ministry and who suffer courageously from time to time. And he says uh, essentially to Timothy in verse 8 and verses 12 and 13, I'm not ashamed. You don't need to be. Uh, suffering is no cause for shame. Being associated with me is no cause for shame. And he's encouraging him to follow his own example. Paul had lived as faithfully as God's grace enabled him to live. Follow the example of the people around you who are living the gospel. And then we, we see Paul explaining, well, okay, why is this a big deal? Why is the gospel worth guarding? Why is it worth suffering for? Why is it worth living for and even dying for? Paul would die because of his commitment to share the gospel. 
And it's worth living and dying for because God's power is in it. And he gives us, it's very simple, verses 9 through 11, he gives us three powerful reasons to commit to the gospel and to guard its authenticity and availability. And first is that the gospel saves us. Verse 9, he has saved us. The gospel puts us into an eternal right relationship with God. Hebrews 9.27 says, People are destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. And the gospel declares you can be free from that judgment for anybody who responds in true faith in Jesus. The gospel saves us. The gospel changes us. Verse 9, He has saved us and called us to a holy life. When the gospel saves you, it places you under the ministry of the Holy Spirit in such a way that over time, He creates His fruit in you. Love, joy, peace, um, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that famous fruit of the Spirit passage in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. So it saves us, it transforms us, and then it gives us eternal life. Verse 10, Jesus Christ has destroyed death and has brought life and, get this, immortality to light through the gospel. How can you live forever? And uh, Bernie has begun his heavenly phase of immortality. I, I'm convinced the moment we are born again through faith in Jesus, we receive immortality. We will live forever. We receive eternal life then, not when we die that's, that's, that's an incredible gift. How does that come? He's brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's how we share that message with others. So these are the reasons why we guard the gospel with passion and with biblical integrity. That's why. And then he concludes these thoughts with a statement of confidence and challenge in verses 12 and 13. I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. This is a profound confidence. It means you can stand up in the face of persecution and suffering and opposition because you're not out there by yourself twisting in the wind. The gospel guards you. God keeps you. If you're a believer today, you have entrusted to God your life and your eternal destiny and everything about it, and He is worthy of that trust. So Paul summarizes his challenge in verse 14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. What is that deposit? The gospel. And the gifts and the abilities and the opportunities to share it. Guard it. Fan it into flame. This scripture is, is a powerful check on our inborn tendency to settle into the rhythms of life and everyday responsibilities at the expense of the really important things. It's a very personal challenge. But it's also a corporate challenge to every church you know, what happens to a church if it loses that edge and, and the, the flame dies down to an ember and it settles into those comfortable rhythms? I can give you an example of that. The same thing that happened to the church in Ephesus where Timothy was 
was serving as a pastor teacher. Some years later, Jesus himself challenges the church in Ephesus along with six other churches about different stuff. But the one in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, listen to this. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. What an indictment. How do you fix that? He goes on, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Go back and do the work of spreading the gospel and advancing the cause. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is a picture of a church that had stopped fanning into flame the gifts that God had given it. After some years, churches by nature, uh, Grace is 35-some years old, by nature we tend to become institutional and more and more highly structured and committed to our preservation and smooth operation. We become more brittle, less flexible. We focus more and more inward on ourselves and our own well-being instead of focusing as much as we might have used to on the Great Commission, which is all about an outward focus of making disciples in our Jerusalem, our Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And this inward focus is what happens when we cool off in our love for the Lord and for His gospel. Now, I chose this passage today very intentionally on this Compassion Sunday to highlight one of the ways that we have worked here at Grace to guard the gospel and to keep fanning the flames of God's gifts to us. And, and we have worked hard at it. We have not done so perfectly. But we have made some important commitments. One of the ways we here at Grace as an institution, as an organization, as a church, fanned the flame of the gospel was to plant churches. Back in 2009, we began to recognize that God was leading us to become a church planting center. Now, planting churches means that we spend a lot of money that we might very well have accumulated here. And we invested a lot of people into those churches instead of growing our numbers here. We actually grew ourselves down in size. And some people would say, and some did, well, you lost a lot of people. We say, no, we didn't. We invested people. The same with the money. There are a couple of ways to get rid of money. Three that I can think of. One, you can give some to me. Uh, two, you can spend it. Or three, you can invest it. You know, over a three-year period, we planted three churches, our first three here in central Kansas, Hillsboro, Mound Ridge, and Park City. Now we have a group of churches that we call Synergy Kansas, as you heard. We planted another one at Lyons, and uh, we're in the early stages of another. We believe God has directed us to El Dorado. Why do we plant churches? Well, because that's how the gospel spread in the New Testament. And... And since, because we plant churches because Jesus commissioned us in Matthew 28 to make disciples. We plant churches because it's the Lord's will for believers to become part of a local church. And we plant churches because a local church is the best place for new believers to be discipled. The life of Paul is a church planting story. The book of Acts is a church planting book. And there are another couple of very practical, gospel-oriented reasons to plant new churches. First, statistics have proven that new churches are the most effective way to evangelize, to reach people for Christ. 
There have been studies done that demonstrate that the majority of new believers who come to Christ do so in churches less than five years old. Because they haven't let the flame die out yet. There are hundreds of people who have come to Christ and are being discipled in this little network of churches that God has allowed us to plant. Now here's the second reason to plant churches. Two-thirds, listen carefully to the numbers here, two-thirds to three-fourths or more of the population of everybody, every community around us, including our own, is unchurched. Two-thirds to three-fourths. In our study of <clears throat> Lyons, Kansas, in anticipating planting a church there, the team discovered that more than 85% of Rice County is unchurched. I want to add another chapter to our church planting story. We always felt the pull to the ends of the earth, part of the Acts 1 mandate to be Jesus' witnesses. You remember I said in Jerusalem, he, he said in, in Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Would the Lord give us the opportunity and the means to plant not only locally but internationally? And that's where Compassion International comes in. A few years ago, Jane Nicholas, uh, whom you saw on screen, was our pastor of church planting, and he helped raise some awareness among us of something that Compassion was doing that was somewhat new to them. And as you know, Compassion International oversees this huge international ministry of Christians sponsoring children in high-poverty areas of the world, and then they build child development centers in those neighborhoods connected with a local church. But about 12 years ago, the lights came on for them in several ways. First, they recognized another statistical reality that is way more than just a dry statistic. 85% of people who come to Christ do so between the ages of 4 and 14. 85% between 4 and 14. Often in these places where they have identified neighborhoods that are ripe for a child development center, there is no local church in their community. No church that will intentionally disciple children and their families. And so they developed a plan in which they partnered with a healthy church in a community that was near the target community, and they work with experienced in-country organizations to provide a church planter and a development center leader. And then they invite churches like ours here to partner with them in helping bring to reality a church in, in this target community. Let me read something that Compassion has on their website about this. Compassion is not a church planting organization. However, our child development program is a natural complement to young church plants. Together, we draw families to the church and offer the opportunity to meet our Savior. And so they developed a church planting model that, in their words, identifies timelines and expectations and accountability. And they now have almost 300 churches around the world, including over 100 in Latin America, including Bolivia. So they identify a needy area a willing mother church nearby there, a church planter, and then they invite a church like ours to sponsor a group of children in that neighborhood or community. And they focus on areas where they think there will be up to maybe 200 potential children who would be available for sponsorship. And then they invite a partner church in the U.S. to donate between seventy-five dollars and $80,000 to build the church and the development center and supply it. For seventy-five dollars or $80,000, we can build a whole facility down there. 
by God's grace, we did exactly that. And, uh, in fact, a number of us from Grace and our broader FEC were invited to Bolivia in 2018 to see the particular community and neighborhood where we would be involved. And this place became the Emmanuel Church. And I've got a few pictures of our time there and the ministry that has developed. I want to run through them rather quickly. You'll wish some of them were on the screen a little longer, but I want you to at least see. And what you see there is a very gracious and enthusiastic welcome we received when our team reached that site where this church and the development center, the Compassion Center, would be located. And that little drive to the right, they're blocking the road, so we have to turn right into their site. Um, the next picture shows that there was some construction that had already begun they had a, a heart and a passion for this and they had raised whatever they could and they had started but they had come to a stop and and then uh, the next picture is uh, just a little side thing this is a new take on a church potluck they roasted a whole lamb or goat or whatever it was and so we just picked up a knife off the table and sliced off whatever slice we wanted i went for the ribs portion um the next picture is just a few of the children in the neighborhood. Um, in the next picture, you see from 150 to 200 kids in the neighborhood had a Sunday school. They had to meet in a backyard. We attended that Sunday morning session. And then uh, the next slide shows uh, an interesting little thing. Do a spell check on that, but that's a brick. Um, and I don't know how to spell community in Spanish either, so it's okay. But they had provided that, prepared that for our They were so thankful to Grace Community Church of Newton, Kansas, that they that we they mortared we mortared that brick into the wall of their church there today, reminding them of your part in helping the gospel get there. Pray for Pastor Juan Montalvo and his wife Elizabeth and the other leaders. Next picture shows R.J. Tippin, who was with us, either giving or getting a picking lesson from the pastor there. And the next pic shows uh, the building substantially completed a couple of years ago by now. And, and the next picture shows a, a gathering in their worship center and assembly hall. It's mostly filled. And so pray for these young people that you see in that picture. They're representative of hundreds that are there. These are among the almost 200 that are Synergy Churches sponsored in that community. And they are now experiencing the benefits of the Emmanuel Church Ministry and the Compassion Child Development Center. God is really doing a profound work there. They're thriving. Pray for them. And they, they're thriving to the extent that they need to build additional classrooms and, and some other training facilities. And Grace has already provided the funding for the construction for the classrooms. And they have additional children who need sponsors. And so we and our other Synergy churches have the opportunity to do that today. This is a gospel effort. This will continue to fan the flame of the gospel there as hundreds of children and their families are reached and discipled. So if the flame is burning a little low in your heart right now, smoldering maybe, what, what do you need to change in your life this week to fan the gift of God in you into white-hot flame? Who in your circle of influence needs to hear the gospel? Maybe it's one of these children that compassion is offering us, who you can be instrumental in pointing him or her to the gospel. We have, Marilyn and I have a little girl there in that center named Judith.
And we write to her, and she writes to us. And she's giving expression to the influence of the Scriptures and the person of Jesus in her life. Where is your heart? Where would you like your heart to be if it's not quite in the place where it should be? Remember what Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I used to read that backwards. Where your heart is, your treasure will go. That's not what Jesus said. Would you like your heart to be with somebody who needs the gospel? Send some treasure there. $35 or $40 a month. I guarantee you, your heart will be there in a new way. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the power in the gospel. Oh, Lord, help us to guard it not only in what we believe about it theologically and doctrinally, to be true, and that's incredibly important, but how we live it out. So we pray that every one of these kids in our church here and in all the Synergy churches will find someone willing to grasp that packet and take up the responsibility of helping give the gospel to them. Thank you, Jesus. We pray in your name.